any of you have ever made a deal that allowed for you to get something done or to accomplish something or to move forward on something, and you said, you know what, I'm going to make a deal, and you turned out pretty quickly down the road that that deal was not enough or you needed to change the deal or make another deal to cover the deal that didn't cover the deal. <laughs> and let me tell you what, what I mean by that. In 1505, there was a young man who was uh, walking uh, along the way and was almost struck by lightning. It was close enough to him that it knocked him down. Uh, he saw the, the, the bright blue flash. It knocked him down. And, and immediately at that point, what he realized was he needed to make a deal to change his life because that was just way too close for him. And so he committed. He actually prayed out to St. Anne, and he made a deal and said, St. Anne, if you will save me today and stop me from being struck by lightning, I will commit myself to a monastery. Now, that was in 1505, and the young man's name was Martin Luther. And in about 30 years, Martin Luther is actually going to turn the church upside down because what he realized was, and I'm just going to be as honest as I can here, what he realized was, first and foremost, St. Anne's not in the Bible. Secondly, we, we don't go making deals for a temporary reprieve when God said, I've got eternal on my mind, not temporary. And, and thirdly, he said, wait a minute, what's going on here in the Catholic Church is not according to the Scriptures. And, and we got to do something about that. Martin Luther would, would begin the Protestant Reformation, and he would change church actually forever throughout the entire world. Now, I know some of you have a Catholic background, and some of you might still identify in those areas, and I don't mean to disparage that in any way, shape, or form, but I will just state the facts that all of those things are not in the Scripture, and that's where we need to try to stay. And if it's in the Scripture, I think it's worth us making a deal, but understanding that God was the one who made the deal with us. When he says, you know what, here, I'll make a deal for you. I'm going to send my son down to cover all of your sins because that's what you need, and there's no deal that you can make on your own with that. And so we find ourselves this morning uh, reviewing a little bit. For those of you who weren't with us last week, and if you're wondering what are these cards in your seats, last week I asked everybody to write down two things and maybe keep that card in a, in a place where you know you're going to see it a lot. So I, I put mine in my wallet. I should have put it on the front of my phone. Uh, because I seem to use that a whole lot more. But I, but I asked you to write down two questions, uh, two, and that's what we're going to continue to look through the book of Mark. And those two questions are, number one, who is Jesus, and how should I respond to him? And, and these are important questions that I think we should always be seeking, because first of all, if we look at who Jesus is, I don't, I don't know that we ever get to a, just a definitive, this is it. We learn more and more about who Jesus is every time we open the scriptures. And we see a tremendous amount of who Jesus is, not by what he said or who he said, which is true, but by what he did. And that's what Mark does. Mark records the activities of Jesus, not just the words of Jesus. So he shows us that. And the, the secondly is, is how should I respond to him? This is a wonderful time for us to realize how I responded to him, how you responded to him. Even in that response may be a rejection or a denial or a turning away, but it helps us to understand that the more we know who Jesus is, the more we can share with people who don't know who Jesus is, how they ought to respond to him. And for that reason, we're going to walk through the book of Mark. We're going to take our time doing so. And for the next year, we're going to pray uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, which I've asked people to write on the other side of the card, which is kind of the theme this year to help us pray about this. And, and that verse just simply says, Read it, read it with me together. And he is the, the church. He is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. All right? That word preeminent is a, is, a, is a big, heady word. It's only used a couple of times. We actually can look back to John's gospel, and we can see a little bit of where John might say that, that, that he ranked higher than me. Uh, and that's what that word preeminent means, is that he already has authority that ranks far beyond my acknowledgement of him or his authority. He already is king of kings and lord of lords, and it is for me to understand who he is to submit to that so I can respond appropriately to him. And so we're going to pray that he might be preeminent. That doesn't mean that he might obtain preeminence, but in my life he might be preeminent, that he may be the first. And let me just tell you, according to 
how Mark's theology and his ideology works a little bit, the way that we might look at that preeminence of Jesus Christ in our own life, how he might have lordship in our own lives, is just by simply saying that everything I think, do, say, spin, go, whatever, is going to be ran through the filter of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Is he the Lord of my finances? Is he the Lord of my marriage? Is he the Lord of my family? Is he the Lord of, of my job? Is he the Lord of these things? If he is not the one who's receiving the glory through all of these different things, if he's not ordaining those relationships each and every day, if I'm not seeing or becoming more like him and showing more of him to those that I'm in those relationships with, there's a good chance that he's not preeminent. And let me just help you out a little bit. If there is a single place in your life where Christ does not have access... That's probably the one place that's stopping you from understanding who Jesus is and how you ought to respond to him. And just so we're clear here, just because you think Christ is off limits in certain areas of your life doesn't mean he has to adhere to your rules. That's not how it works. And so I would just encourage you, let him be Lord of your life. Let him have preeminence. Let him be the head of the church of the body of you as members of the body of Christ. Which brings us to Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, that we find ourselves this morning. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to there. I want you to be able to, to find that either digitally or, or in paperback. If you don't have a Bible, please take one on the way, way out. We want to make sure that you have one of those things. But it's important that you get into God's Word as regularly as possible. And so we're going to find ourselves in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. We're continuing what we talked about last week, and we're looking at part of the life of John the Baptist and so what we've just finished seeing in the first eight verses is that John the Baptist was out in the, in the wilderness and he was baptizing people. And John was baptizing people and calling them to repentance and telling them to, to have faith in the one that's coming after him. And so we find ourselves in Mark 1 verses 9 through 13 and it says this, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, we ask, Lord, that you would reveal to us the meaning of the time and the application of, of today so that we understand what was going on at the time that this happened and we know how that applies to our lives today. Father, most importantly, help us to see the example of Jesus and the reason why he would go through uh, such an event to be baptized, that we would understand what that means in our own lives, what was done for us, what's being asked of us, and why we might tell others how to respond to Jesus in the same way. Father, bless us as we continue to study in Christ's name. Amen. When we first look at this passage of Scripture, we, we could ask the same question that, that many of the, the disciples might ask. Of course, we may not ask that because we don't really understand this. But it would say, can anything good come from Nazareth, right? And so we see immediately that Jesus was someplace else while John was doing what he was supposed to do. John, being the cousin of Jesus, was about six months older, and he was called, set apart, most likely had what was called a Nazarite vow. And this Nazarite vow you would probably most be familiar with was a guy named Samson from the Old Testament. And the vow said you can't eat certain things and you can't shave your hair and you can't have anything with grapes, including wine or anything like that. And if you do, any, you should be set aside to do specific ministry for the Lord. Now, the Nazarites actually had a very regimented life and it often set them apart from people, even in social interaction. For example, in the temple, where the temple was divided in different places, so the women came to this place, the men came to this place, the Gentiles were only able to go this far, then you go to the holy place in the temple, a little bit further in, then this small little area, the most holy place, and the Nazarites actually had a little room inside the area where the women met to keep them separate from everybody else so they would be ceremonially clean. Now, you might remember with Samson, one of the things that happened with Samson was that he lied to Delilah, and then he lied with Delilah, and then he got his hair cut off and lost all of his strength, and he ate, he drank wine and do all these things. When a Nazarite fulfilled their vow, what would happen is they would go and actually shave their heads, because they weren't allowed to cut their hair, they would shave their heads, and a sacrifice would be offered in the temple to fulfill their vow. 
In Samson's particular case, what happened was his head was cut off by another woman, indicating the end of his vow. And then the sacrifice that was made was his very own life when he returned back to God and took the, 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 the synagogue and tippled down a pond to fix it. Now here's John. He's a Nazarite. He's bringing people to be baptized, which is a very weird thing. And then there's this Jesus coming from this place called Galilee. Now, for me, it would be kind of like Dallas. It would be just one of those places nobody really likes, nobody really wants anything from, and nothing good comes out of it, right? Is that fair? Well, sure it is, right? College Station, I just, Lord, bless them. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It's important that we see the geography of this because what we see is that John and Jesus were not together at the time, but John was fulfilling his ministry. And in the process of fulfilling his ministry, Jesus was also about to begin his ministry, and he went to John, whose task was to prepare the way for one who will come after him. And that's what he was doing. And so Jesus says, hey, you've been preparing the way for me to come after you. I'm here now. And so he, he walks up to John, and he's baptized in the Jordan River, and we see that. And there's a lot of history behind the Jordan. I'm not going to get into all those things. But what we see that happens next, that many of us know these words, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, we see that the, the heavens were torn from the top to the bottom, which would indicate us down the road exactly what's going to happen in the temple when Jesus is sacrificed. There was a veil that was about 9 to 12 inches thick that separated the most holy place of the temple from everything else, and only the high priest could go in there. And the day that Jesus was sacrificed, it said that the, the sky grew dark about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the ground shook, and that veil that was about 9 to 12 inches thick, and it was most likely felt or some sort of wool, was torn from the top to the bottom in two. Now, I don't know about you, but it's the equivalent to trying to tear apart about 900 phone books by hand. And it was done revealing the most holy place to everybody else. And we see these supernatural events are happening. And what, what, what Mark's gospel records is that the spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove. And he heard the voice. And so now what we have is something really cool happening here. You have all three parts of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have convened in one place for most likely the first time on earth since creation. Let us create man in our own image. And John heard it. And John saw it. Now, now in, in, in the gospel of John, we actually see that the, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus and rested on him like a dove and did not leave him. Now, this is important. I want you to really hold on to this. Because prior to this point, the Holy Spirit would interact from time to time with people. There was never a, a, a permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit with an individual and staying with them forever and ever and ever. There were times by which God's Holy Spirit would anoint someone by their presence and they would give them the ability to do things that they did not have the ability to do previously or perhaps didn't think about previously, and it would empower them for a specific task. And at this point, what we see is that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God descended upon Jesus and stayed with him permanently. This is really important because it's an example of what's going to happen for us down the road. Likewise, what we can see is that right after he was baptized and the full deity, the, the full trinity of the deity was exposed and shown out, that, that Jesus obediently took on the baptism that day in front of everybody. Now, he and John had an argument back and forth because John said, no, no, yeah, I'm not worthy to wash your dirty feet let alone to wash all of you in the river. And Jesus said, look, this has to happen so that the scripture may be fulfilled. But, but I want you to catch something here and just hold this in the back of your mind for a second. Until Jesus came to John, John was baptizing people of repentance. They were coming to him and saying, I have broken the laws of Moses. I have sinned against God. I want to be forgiven of that. Will you wash my sins away ceremonially and, and, and let me go on with my life? Let me go through this process of having my sins forgiven. Well, Jesus didn't need that. He had no sins to confess or to repent of. There was no purpose for him to, to go and be baptized under John's baptism of repentance, but instead it was a baptism of obedience and it was an example for us to follow. But, but what but really, 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 really happens after this is the Holy Spirit is rested upon Jesus. It's not leaving him. And it says immediately 
Now, that word's used 42 times throughout the book of Mark, or 40 times, depending upon your translation, throughout the book of Mark, that immediately something happened, that actions and activity took place as the result of a response to God in that moment. And it said immediately the Holy Spirit, and the word is drove Jesus into the wilderness. It's very similar to what happened to Jesus whenever he was on his way and he had to go through Samaria. Because Jews used to walk around Samaria, and we get the story of the Good Samaritan. That same word is in there to talk about the significance of the requirement of him to have to go through Samaria. And so it says the Holy Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And then this is really interesting, to be tempted not by the devil, which would be a lowercase d in some of your Bibles, and that who would be called the deceiver, but by Satan, who is a proper name, who is a, a specific individual, most likely Lucifer from the Old Testament, who was the archangel that fell from heaven when he chose to rebel against God, who said, if I can't destroy God, I'll destroy his creation. The best chance I've got is to take out his son. And if his son, who is the hope for all mankind, decides to turn against his father and to turn against everybody else, I've got humanity right where I want them. And misery will not have company. It will have miserable company. And so it said the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. Now, kids, you may know this story better than your parents do. But do you remember the story of, 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 of David and Goliath? You see, David was the last of all the children, and his brothers were standing in the Valley of Elah, and the Philistine army was on one side, and, and the Israelites were on the other side, and Saul was too much of a wimp to come out of his tent and face this guy who had six fingers and, and stood about three foot taller than everybody else and had a giant sword that weighed like 300 pounds, and he would call out and he would mock their God. And David shows up with some cheese and some bread for his brothers, which is pretty important because if he had brought some wine there too, then they could be in good company because that's all they were doing was just complaining about stuff, right? And he says, do you hear what this man is saying about our God? And his brothers more or less said, yeah, dude's been saying it for 40 days. Oh, isn't that interesting? That Jesus, who would come from the line of David, would be forced into, would be driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days, just like his forefather David did, who said, Lord, please don't let the Messiah come from any place else but my line. And God promised that would happen. There's some really cool things that are happening in this. Likewise, we see that he's there with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Let me tell you why this is significant. Because at the beginning of creation, everything was in harmony like it was supposed to be. But here we are out in the middle with the wild animals in the wilderness, by the way, which is a dry, desolate place, which usually was full of all kinds of dangers. And the animals, just like anything out there, was fighting to survive. And if fresh meat walked in, particularly one that hadn't eaten, or as we see in other parts of the Gospels, hadn't drank anything either in 40 days, he's slim pickings, right? He's easy to pick off. And yet he was being ministered to by the angels. Now, don't miss out on this. The angels weren't there fighting off all the wild animals and everything else. I think what this passage actually tells us is that the angels were saying, you can do this. You, you can stay the course. You can continue to resist Satan himself. You can do this. And all of humanity needs for you to do this. And so have you ever been in a place where you made a deal, now you got yourself backed into a corner, and there's somebody else who needs you to renege on that deal, by the way, or to fail in that deal, and they're not telling you you can do this. They're telling you you can fail. You can fall apart. And so here's Jesus. The first reality that we have with the Holy Spirit residing permanently with a single individual and the angels, who had really two jobs in all of Scripture, they were to glorify God and to bring forth his message. That's really all the angels ever did. And, and so when we, we talk about people becoming angels, let me just tell you, that's, that's, that's a demotion. That's not an upgrade. People don't die and become angels. There's nothing in here that talks of that, by the way. Angels are angels. People are people. They are different. They are created differently with different purposes. And so this whole interaction took place because a guy that didn't have to come and repent any sins because he had none decided to go and identify himself with humanity and have somebody put him under the water, take him back out of the water, listen to the voice of God talk, and right as soon as that happened, he was put straight to work and on task for what he was sent here to do. And so that leads me to this question this morning. 
Why was Jesus baptized? Why was he baptized? Because either he was a sinner or he wasn't a sinner. And I'm here to tell you this morning, he was not a sinner. But he was fully God and fully man. And so he had the potential to sin, but chose not to. He had the ability to sin, but chose not to. He had the temptation to sin, not just for these 40 days, but for his entire life, and he never did. And so if Mark is true to his gospel, he's not telling us what Jesus said. He's telling us what Jesus did, in this case, what he did not do. He did not sin. But I'll tell you that Jesus was baptized to fulfill prophecy. That this is the way it had to be. That, that Jesus was baptized to voluntarily commit himself to the cross. Because not only was he crucified for sins he didn't commit, he was baptized not because he had committed sins, but to demonstrate that this was an act of obedience to identify himself with all of humanity. It was also to inaugurate his public ministry. Now, now let me just dive into those last two things for just a second. To inaugurate his public ministry, what we see is that the voice of God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. You know what it takes for a father to say, I'm pleased with you? You do what he asks. You do what he asks. You, you, you don't do what he doesn't ask, and, and you don't do things that he said not to do. You do what he asks. And he asked Jesus, go down there, be like them, be an example for them, the salvation that they cannot achieve on their own. And I want you to start by going and teaching them to know who I am and how to respond to me. I want you to inaugurate your ministry so that everybody sees this supernatural event and then begin to ask questions about, well, what was his necessity of being baptized? It's a great question, but it's not going to be near as important as the question of why, why was he sent down there? He didn't do anything. the last part there is to identify with sinners. Now you might be going, well, wait a minute, Jesus didn't sin. How does he identify with sinners? Well, one, he lived like us. Two, he's tempted like us. Three, he actually has access to the same power and authority that we do once we believe. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to do anything different than humanity. But I'm going to show you I can resist all those temptations to turn against the Father. And because of so, I'm going to be the only worthy sacrifice to cover over your sins. So do you understand a little bit why Jesus was baptized? So now let me ask you this question. For those of you who are believers and those of you who are not believers, I want you to really pay attention to this question. What kind of baptism did you receive? I'm not sure where your mind is, but my thoughts may be here for a minute. Because there are two examples that I have. I have John's baptism and I have Jesus' baptism. Now, what do you mean? Are you talking about was I sprinkled? Was I immersed? Are you talking about was I baptized as an infant? Are you talking about was I baptized as an adult? Are you talking about believer's baptism? Are you talking about confirmation class? Are you talking about, was it a, a natural spring water? Was it the Jordan River? Was it the bathtub? What, what, what do you mean, what kind of baptism did I receive? And I'm going to attempt this morning to show you that the scripture actually speaks of, of really two baptisms. And it's John's and Jesus's, which, which we might also see as John's baptism. And we might see as the baptism by the Holy Spirit, the baptism by fire. And, and before you start thinking, oh, this is way too much for me, I can't understand it. Yes, you can. I'm going to tell you why you can understand this. Because the Holy Spirit helps us to understand who God is and how to respond to him. And it's times like these when we get to a place where we stand up and go, oh, this is too hard, this is too heady, this is too theological. No, 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 there's nothing deep theologically in this, all right? There's good theology in this, but nothing deep theologically in this. So don't give up before you even get started. Because I'm going to show you the difference. First of all, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Now, we've talked about repentance in this church a lot. I've talked to you about what it means to repent. I've even told you that to repent basically says, I did this, and I know I did this, and I did this, uh, and, it, and it violated God's laws and God's rules. But, but here's, here's what repentance really is. Are you ready for this? 
you're, your mind's going to be blown by this. I can just tell because all week long I've been saying, your mind's going to be blown by this. Repentance is basically being caught for something you did wrong and pleading guilty. Just think about that for a second. You're in cuffs, standing before the judge. There's video evidence, and the judge says, how do you plead? Well, I did that. Yeah, that's me on the tape. I'm guilty. That's all repentance is with this caveat. I'm sorry I did that. You see, so many times people say, yes, it's me. It's unrefutable. I'm the one who did that. I broke the rule. I broke the law, whatever. I repent. Really, all that is is a confession, which is important too. Repentance says, I did it. I don't want to do it again. And I know the damage done to the relationship, right? And that's what John was offering was for people to come in and say, listen, I repent of my sins of how I violated God's laws. And John said, man, that's great. I'm going to baptize you, but I'm going to baptize you to wash those sins away because you've confessed that you are guilty and you know it. But I want you to be ready to follow the one that comes after me. Secondly, what we see is that the baptism was just a ceremony. I don't know how many of you showered this morning. I hope many of you did. But, 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 but it's just getting wet if all you did was walk through the process and you go up. Now, I said earlier that, that you know nothing good comes from Dallas, right? Well, let me just ask you this. If I go to Dallas, does that make me a Cowboys fan? Because being baptized by just going through the process does not make you a Christ follower, a believer in Jesus, and it actually doesn't save you either. And there are a lot of people who unfortunately... When you ask them about their faith or about Christianity, the first thing they'll say is, well, I've been baptized. Great, I've been to Dallas. There really is no difference. And the reason why there's no difference is because there's no change in your heart. There's no change in your life. I'm going to get to that in just a second. John's baptism was really just an acknowledgement, right? Because at some point you get to a place and go, you know what, I can't do this. I can't fix this. Something has to be done for me. There has to be some sort of process for this to happen for me. And so I acknowledge that I need help. And John says, come and I'll baptize you after you've repented of the sins and the violation of God's laws. I'll baptize you and, 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 and you can go on about your life and, and don't change anything. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, I'm baptizing you today telling you that I'm just ceremonially washing away your sins, but until your heart is dealt with by one who is sinless, who's going to be sacrificed needlessly, but for our account, until you believe in him, your baptism is just getting wet. It was both procedural and anticipatory as well. Because John didn't say that once you're baptized, you can check the box and call it good. What he said was, I'm baptizing you today because you repented of your sins, but I'm also taking this opportunity to tell you about one that's going to come after me that's not just going to forgive your sins. He's going to give you eternal life, and I can't give you that. I can't give, I can only point you toward him who can. And if you only believe in me and saying that now my sins have been forgiven, well, how many times do you need to get baptized, right? Every day. And that's why John would say that I baptize with water, but one's coming after me is going to baptize with fire and with spirit. And so we know when Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. And as John's uh, record tells us in his gospel was that the Spirit did not depart him, that it was with him forever. And Jesus would say that a helper is coming uh, after me that's going to be with you, that's going to guide you, right? Look what Mark 1, 4, and 5 says. If you, if you have your Bible, just look up a couple pages, a couple verses. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and, and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now listen, folks, hear me out on this. It's important that we confess our sins, and it's important that we repent, and it is important that we be baptized. All those things are important. Now, two of those things are necessary for salvation, but the third one is not necessary for salvation as far as John's baptism is concerned, as far as being put down in the water or sprinkled or whatever the case may be. Nothing about that actually saves us because it's just ceremonial. It's just procedural. 
It, it doesn't actually save us because we've been baptized, especially if it's just a process we go through. What saves us is that our heart says, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and I'm taking the ceremonial baptism as an example of the Holy Spirit coming to rest on me forever. It's an outward expression of an inward faith. We, we can see the thief on the cross, and I'm going to get back to him in just a second, but there were two thieves next to Jesus, and one was mocking him, and one of them said, don't you know who he is? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Don't you know who he really is? And that, my friends, is where I think the real difference is between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. In Acts chapter 18, we get this guy named Apollos, and, and if, you, if you want to turn, you can turn to Acts 18, verses 24 and 25. This guy named Apollos had had an encounter with a Christian somewhere, or followers of the way, as, as, as Acts will say, and, and he knew the scriptures well. It actually says this, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, this is all happening within about 30 to 40 years of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so word of what Jesus had done has gotten out. And John, as we know, has been baptizing people. In fact, in John chapter 3, uh, right after John 3.16, we see that, that John, is, is have, John the Baptist is having conversations with his disciples, with his team. And they said, hey, does it bother you that this Jesus guy is baptizing more people than you are? And John says, no, I must decrease and you must increase because I only baptize with water. And he's actually giving them the Holy Spirit to dwell with them forever and ever and to guide them and to equip them. And so here's this guy named Apollos, who if you read the book of Galatians, you're going to get to a place where there's a big argument about who baptized who. And Paul will even say, man, I thank God I didn't baptize any of you knuckleheads. Because it's not my ability to baptize you that saves you. It's your belief in Jesus Christ, the one to come after that John was talking about. And if you've only received John's baptism, then you most likely did not receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, Pastor, we're starting to get a little deep with you now, Pastor Mike. What do you mean I didn't receive the Holy Spirit? How do you know I didn't receive the Holy Spirit? Well, I'm going to tell you how I know you didn't receive the Holy Spirit. Boy, you're going you're gonna to really think differently about me because of these circumstances. Because as important as John's baptism was, it was not a replacement for Jesus' baptism. And the reason why I can say that is receiving the Holy Spirit as the promised gift that seals us for all of eternity was necessary and only provided through the baptism that comes through the Spirit, Jesus Christ. Remember? And so let's look at Jesus' baptism for a second. Whereas John's baptism only gave us repentance, Jesus' gives us forgiveness. Whereas John's baptism gives us an identity that we've pushed against the culture, Jesus' baptism completely transforms us. Paul would write to the Romans and to the Corinthians that we are buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in new life. He would also say, take off the old self and put on the new self. He would say you become a new self by being renewed in your mind by the reading of the scriptures and the washing of your spirit, the Holy Spirit. And those things would change in your life. And the evidence of that change is not just the joy that I've checked the box and mom and dad are happy that I raised my hand after the clown at Vacation Bible School did some juggling and said, who wants to be with Jesus? And everybody raised their hand and said so. And the next day, your kid's still cussing like a sailor and doesn't feel bad about it. Now, I'm not saying that they immediately change. I'm just saying that the Holy Spirit begins to convict us of our sins immediately. And if there is no conviction of that sin, then it's likely you didn't receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized. And so you're probably not saved at all. And at best, what you got was John's baptism where you repented of your sin, which just says, I'm guilty and I know I'm guilty and everybody else knows I'm guilty, but I have not received the Holy Spirit because I don't really believe in Jesus. And I don't really believe in Jesus because I haven't seen anything of the evidence in, the, in my life and I'm not doing anything so that I might have eternal life. I'm doing everything just so I can have eternal life and not thinking about everything in between here and there because 
because when Jesus received the Holy Spirit, he was immediately driven out into the wilderness to be tempted to stand against Satan and say, not today, Satan, not for the next 40 days, Satan, not for all of eternity. And that same gift, the same power that rose him from the dead lives in me once I receive the Holy Spirit through Jesus' baptism, not by water, but by fire and by spirit. What are you talking about? You just went on this rant, and I'm not sure I fully understand you. Well, if you still have your Bible open to the book of Acts, what you'll see is after Acts 18, where Apollos had received John's baptism, even though he was an eloquent teacher, and he knew the scriptures, and he was teaching them correctly, he still did not have the power of the Holy Spirit to do all kinds of other things. He was working on his own will, and I'm going to tell you, that only lasts for so long. And he was trying to be obedient. He truly was. But when Paul got to him, he says, hey, did you listen to the back part of what John says? Is that I'm baptizing you in preparation of the one that comes after me? And this is what it says in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We can't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. Well, wait a minute. That means we have knowledge, but we need more knowledge. But we don't know who this Holy Spirit is. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized, uh, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, before you start wondering, Pastor, I don't speak in tongues and I don't prophesy. Does that mean I don't have the Holy Spirit? No, that's not what that means. And the reason I can say that with, with such eloquence is because I can look through the rest of the book of Acts and I can see how the Holy Spirit acted differently at different times, specifically in 1 Corinthians, in, in, in chapters 12 and 13, we see that the Spirit actually gives out gifts differently. So each of us who have received the Holy Spirit should have a different gift that ought to be building this church up, this body. I'm not talking numerically, but ought to be teaching us more of who Jesus is and how to respond to him every day and should be empowering us, should be inaugurating our ministry into the rest of the world, right? And so if Jesus' ministry started when he was baptized and received the Holy Spirit that set on him, rested on him, and then drove him to take action, then when we were baptized, guess what? We should have had the same thing happen. Because the first thing that should have happened when we were baptized is we started telling people what that means. Well, it means that the pastor held me underwater, and for an extra 20 bucks, he held me down for even longer. No. It means that I went and I stood before the throne of Jesus Christ, and I said, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior and I don't just want my sins forgiven now. I want to learn who you are, and I want to respond to you every day of my life, and I want to become more like this Jesus who gave his life for me. And I don't have to know everything today, but I know this much. I'm going to learn more about it tomorrow, and I'm going to be able to tell everybody I meet at least that much, that not only have my sins been forgiven, I haven't checked my get-out-of-hell-free card yet. What I've checked is that I'm going to live eternity in the pre in the presence of Jesus, and that starts today, not the day I die. That starts right now, being who he really is. Likewise, you might remember this verse, and you've probably heard it before. But when we participate out of obedience, then our ministry begins. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's one of the most often quoted passages of Scripture. I think you need to understand this passage of Scripture. Jesus, just before he returns to the Father, after he'd been here, I don't know, 40 days after his resurrection, you see him trim here? He says to his disciples, now look, things changed. As soon as I was nailed to that cross and walked out of that grave, things changed. And the helper I promised you is going to come to you. And Acts 1.8 says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, now, listen, I understand that it can be challenging to share your faith with other people. But I'm going to tell you that the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers you to do so. And without him, you can educate. You maybe can even inspire a little bit. 
but all you're really doing is introducing someone to the possibility that there is a God, that he has a son named Jesus, that his spirit wants to minister to each and every one of us, and pray that the Holy Spirit begins to work in that person's life based upon the truth and evidence of your life that has been transformed because you've received Jesus as Savior. And to not do so would hinder, would question, would challenge whether or not, one, you ever received the Holy Spirit at all. Because if you get John's baptism, you get Jesus' baptism. And secondly, did you mature in Christ? Because there's countless scriptures in here that talk about the strangling or the, 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 the choking out or the, 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 the sub, submitting the Holy Spirit in such a way that we don't listen anymore. I mean, come on, don't you have someone in your life that's encouraging you to do the right thing and you've found creative ways to ignore them? We're talking about a Holy Spirit that dwells within you forever once you have received Jesus' baptism. And you, in turn, at that moment, begin to participate in his ministry and really participate in your ministry. And it gets to the question of salvation and the necessity of salvation and what that really means to us. Romans chapter 6, verse 4 tells us that baptism is an outward expression of an inward faith. We were buried, therefore, with him. We identified with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It doesn't say that we might eventually have new life. It says we too may walk present in newness of life, that we are now aliens in a foreign land, that this is not our home, that our citizenship is in heaven, and we are but mere sojourners here, and the reason for us to be here and not be taken up immediately is that we have started our ministry to go and tell others about this salvation that we have been given through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is evidence of Jesus' baptism. To say, no, I don't need to do that, that there are people that we hire for that, or people who are gifted with evangelism, which is true. But to say that it is not my job to tell others about Jesus, or I don't feel equipped enough to tell others about Jesus, or I don't know enough about Jesus that I can tell others about them, that's not true. That, that is not true. The truth is that if you have believed in him, and you have confessed that you are a sinner, and you've asked him to save you of your sins, you know everything you need to know. And it is the power of the Holy Spirit that works in you that begins to interact with others and bring them to the cross of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 tells us that, that it's an obedient example. For I deliver to you, Paul says, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. That my baptism... My gift of the Holy Spirit was to be able to tell the story of what Jesus did for me, and that's why I'm baptized. Finally, what I want to show you this, this morning is that it prepares us for our mission. I, I think this is the place by which believers or proclaimed believers really get to a challenge because they don't understand that as soon as you accept the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, you are on mission. They feel like there's some sort of boot camp they got to go through. And some of those people stay in boot camp for 40, 50, 60 years. When you are immediately drafted into the Lord's army. And you have everything you need to go out and fight the battles that this world throws at you. Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So, John, you've just got through saying a bunch of words. What are, what are you really trying to tell us this morning? What I'm trying to tell you is this. Baptism is not the end goal of Christianity. It's a first step in the transformed life and salvation of Christ. I want you to think about that for a second. Baptism is not the end goal of Christianity. It's a first step in the transformed life of Jesus Christ. And friends, I'm here to tell you, and there is, there is data to back this up, 
in the 90s and the early 2000s, the largest single Christian denomination in the world, the Southern Baptists, said that the majority of their baptisms were what they considered rebaptisms, because what they found was all those kids they baptized in the 70s and 80s did not believe who Jesus is, and they did not respond to his call in their life. And so let me just speak this into you for a moment. If you're wondering about rebaptism, even the example that I just had about Apollos for a second. And I, I, I've heard some of your stories. I know where you're coming from. And listen, I'm not trying to cheapen or lessen or degrade any of your past experiences. Because I know some of you were baptized as an infant. I know some of you were confirmed through a course that you took in a Methodist church or a Lutheran church, and you were sprinkled. I, I, I know those modes of baptism. And I, I know that you went through this systematic way of doing so. And I don't mean to cheapen any of that. But I'm just telling you, that if all you did was check a box and go through a process and a procedure, you received John's baptism. And that means you're not saved. Let me rephrase that. It's likely you're not saved. And the reason is because you put your trust and your confidence in a process, not in a faith, not in a belief. And the evidence of that will be what has the Holy Spirit done in your life since the day you were baptized? What has the Holy Spirit done in your life since the day you said, I'm going to follow Jesus' example, and I'm going to draw upon the same power that resurrected him that lives in me? Now, that is both a product of bad discipleship, but it's also having the false sense of security that I'm good to go. If my life were to end today, I'm going to spend forever with Jesus. And I'm going to tell you that as a pastor, one of the things that convicts me most about this is that we've made baptism such the central thought such an, an endpoint for Christianity that we've been offering John's baptism for years and 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 never told people the reality of who Jesus is and haven't watched it in their lives that the Holy Spirit that descended upon Jesus that day initiated their ministry just like they did his. And so before you get to a place to where you start doubting your salvation and doubting your baptism, because I know that this message could cause that to happen, Here's what I would just simply ask you to respond this morning. Was your baptism a finished line or a starting line? And that could change today because you could very easily be one of those people that say, you know what, I did profess Jesus that day and I did get baptized, but I have resisted the Holy Spirit. I have not learned more of the scriptures in all this time that I've had and I have not responded properly to tell others about my salvation, to tell my story. And by the way, friends, without the Holy Spirit, your story's just another story. But with the Holy Spirit, your story takes on literally an eternal level of conversation that does more than you could ever possibly imagine. And as you get to know who Jesus is and learn more about him and learn how the Holy Spirit works, you will see that this gift that was given to you was not given to you while you were put in the water, under the water, or taken out of the water. It was put in your heart the day you were baptized. If you have questions or concerns or fears about your baptism or what that process looks like, we need to talk about it. I'm not in the practice of rebaptizing people, okay? I don't believe that we can do a refresher. Hey, I was baptized when I was nine, and now I'm 45, and I want to be rebaptized. I don't believe in that because that is an act. Right, But if you didn't believe the first time, let's baptize you. Let's don't re-baptize you. Let's baptize you. As we close this morning, I ask the band to come up here in a minute. I'm going to tell you a, a final thought that, that really kind of plagued me a little bit this week. I talked with a pastor friend of mine who ironically lives in Dallas. Prayed for him. Right? I thought it was good for him to go to a mission field full of lost people. I said, let me ask you something, brother. If baptism isn't changing the lives of people, if we're not watching the Holy Spirit take hold of their lives and do amazing things in their life, why do we keep tracking baptisms as a metric of a healthy church? Why do we do that? Why, why do we push that baptism is the, the finish line instead of the starting place of my ministry? And his response was honest. He says, because we've always done it that way, first of all. Second of all, because there are so many other things that are so really challenging to measure 
And I just simply said to him, brother, let me tell you this. Let me tell you this, church. We're a small church. We've always been a small church, and we will probably always be a small church. But, but mark my words, listen to this. And I mean this. We will be a small church because people have rejected the invitation that Jesus has for them, not because they've never heard it. Let me say that again. We will not be a small church because people didn't hear the gospel. It's because they still know I don't want that. And we won't be a big church because we're out there offering, just like Martin Luther did in 1530, to sell salvation by getting you baptized. I haven't baptized anybody, I think, in three years. And that grieves me like you wouldn't understand. And it's not because we didn't go through the process and we didn't have a celebration because it's a great celebration, man. It's because people have rejected the invitation of Jesus Christ. And more so, many have just not believed. If you have been baptized and the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you are on a mission to tell others about Jesus. That's your mission. And so will you consider if your baptism today was a response endpoint or a strategy. Let's pray. Father, I am convinced of the things you will ask of us as Christ's followers that baptism is by far the simplest. That it just says, I believe this to be true and I want a transformed life. I want to follow Jesus in obedient baptism and I want others the same security that I have of knowing that if my life ends today or ends in 800 years from now, I know what Jesus did for me. And so whether that's in a few minutes or in a few years, Lord, that, that my life comes to an end, I need to be on mission with you. And I need to tell others not just about how to escape hell and how to make a deal with God so that I, I, I can keep on living my life, but how I can live life more abundantly. How I can tap into that power and authority that comes from the Holy Spirit that is gifted to me as a result of my belief in you that's exemplified through the act of baptism. And so, Holy Spirit, I would pray that you would begin to do a work in the hearts and minds of everyone sitting in this room that you would reveal to them what it is you can do in their lives and what their mission is to tell others about this great and amazing eternal gift that they have of salvation through Jesus. Father, I pray that baptism is not the finish line. We would never offer such a cheap grace but just follow a process and then be good for the rest of your properly to you and to Jesus. It's this in his holy name. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning? We're going to go into worship.